what was needed to be done. Um, there are a couple things, though, I want to I talk about there um, in terms of announcements. Um, as we get into the Christmas season, obviously, this is a season um, when a lot of folks ha- are coming to church, and, and we've been really blessed as, as, as a congregation. We've had uh, guests and, and new friends coming in um, pretty constantly um, the whole season. I mean, we've really had a, a tremendous season. Um, but I'm going to encourage you on a couple, a couple of areas, um, and, and you guys are excellent about this stuff. Um, the, the first thing is, obviously, because of the, the mandate, uh, we want to make sure that we're uh, in compliance, so we want to make sure everybody's wearing masks when they're moving around the building, um, that we're maintaining social distance, we're sanitizing our hands, we're washing our hands. We actually bought, um, and Sean installed, three new hand sanitizing stations through the building, um, and the... People sent us the wrong sanitizer. It doesn't fit in the in the machines. So um, so Sean's going to get that fixed. Um, and we know that it legitimately doesn't work. Now, if Sean said it didn't work, we might go, well, you know, did he read the instructions? But D said it doesn't work, so we know for a fact it is not working. Um, but we did we we installed those, um, and uh, so rather than getting the pumps and everything and. Um, so we encourage everybody to just be aware of those things. If you're not feeling well, don't come to church. Now, um, of course, this is the season when everybody starts to get the perennial thing. Uh, Greg Jones and I were talking about it. I said, so Greg, I said, you enjoying your seasonal cough? He said, yes. I said, I'm enjoying my seasonal nose run. Um, this is, it happens to us every year. Um, so we're uh, hopefully comfortable enough to know what, what is our normal thing, you know, just like those with allergies and those who get, you know, your winter cough, see every, how that is different from all the symptoms the CDC lists. Um, but uh, if, you're, if you have symptoms, if you're running a fever and things, you shouldn't come to church anyway if you're running a fever, just so you know, COVID or not. Um, if you're running a fever, it means your, fi- your body's trying to burn something out of your system. You should not be here sharing whatever your body's trying to get rid of. Um, so just in general, that's a good policy. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, you know, we encourage you to just be wise. Um, and again, it, it's not, it's not about compliance with the government and they're telling us that everybody's fighting about this. It's being good citizens and being good neighbors. We just want to be considerate. We want to be flexible. Um, so tying in with that, as people are coming to church, I'm going to ask, uh, all of our covenant members and regulars be aware um, if we notice that the, the sanctuary is starting to fill up, um, we do not want to push our guests and friends downstairs to watch on YouTube, all right? Um, so just be aware of that. Um, normally, in a normal season, we would just go, oh, come and sit with me, and we'd scooch over. Uh, we really can't do that. Um, so, so what we need to be willing to do is to actually give up our seats um, if you notice somebody coming in, somebody you don't not familiar with, they're looking for a seat, be willing to give up your seat, go downstairs, suffer a little bit of inconvenience so that they can be a part of the worship gathering. We're not gonna we're not gonna take reservations and numbers and things like that. You know, it's like, no, this is my seat. You can't sit here. This, I reserve this spot for church. Um, you know, uh, and so we're we're working on that. We're trying to figure out what to do in terms of we're not doing a big Christmas event, but we know that things can get. Um, hectic Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve, and those kind of things. We're 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 trying to work our overflow system and all of that. Um, uh, I I, he- I heard the ladies had a good group yesterday, um, a good gathering. Um, uh, my wife came home singing Noel uh, Taku's praises, so um, she she paid you the greatest compliment my wife could ever pay anyone. Would you like to know what it was? 
She said, it was like a female you. Now, first of all, if you've ever met my sister Kristen, you know what a female me looks like. So she's not saying that Noel is like the only difference is the facial hair, um, but the but uh, she you know and so Noel was part of uh, Noah. My my sister Kristen is beautiful. May I just clarify? Yes, go ahead. I think it was assumed. I didn't think you were talking about her height. Her husband's the one who wears the same hats as me. Yeah, no. Um, so we're, we're blessed with a, a, a great assemblage of, uh, of ladies who love the scriptures and, and get into them. And Noel and Dave joined the church uh, earlier this year, uh, right before Easter, right? You guys joined at the annual meeting, right? Last year? Was it? La- I thought we did it over Zoom. Didn't we do it over Zoom? You guys joined, joined. Yeah, you started coming last year, but you, you joined the, the membership la- uh, over Zoom, the Zoom members. Um, so and and Dave and Noel have been helping out in so many ways, and so we're we're thankful, adding into the ladies' ministry and all that's going on, um, and and bringing people in. Um, and by the way, if you see any of the, not that I'm complimenting ladies today, that's like my thing, um, but if you see all those really cool ladies' ministry uh, brochures and bulletins and pictures and and graphics, that's all Heather Byron. Um, so she does it for free. So if you're looking for a graphic, just no. Um, but uh, but Heather Heather's been a part of that team. It's just the the um, the leadership of the women's uh, ministry has just been expanding, bringing in as many uh, of the ladies in as we can uh, as we can. Make it sound like I was involved, um, you know. And so they're engaged. Uh, no no youth group today, right, Tom? All right. There's a little bit of sickness in the Hathcote house. Um, it's not COVID. We're okay. Um, but uh, and so. Uh, we're sorting some stuff out there, uh, and obviously this week is uh, Thanksgiving, um, and so uh, everybody's going to gather virtually. I guarantee Zoom crashes uh, Thursday at about 1 p.m. W- when did turkeys new- normally get done? I come from a household where my mother would like blow through the door at uh, like 1 o'clock in the afternoon and go, i got to put the turkey in, and we'd be eating at like 11 at night, um, and it was, you know... Uh, Jerky with dry, dry bread, and some red substance shaped like a can. It's cranberry sauce. No, it's not. Could you at least have us the decency to break it up so it doesn't look like the container? Um, but anyway, my mother's culinary skills. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, this week is Thanksgiving, which means that we're getting ready to go into the Advent season. We're actually going to finish up Ezra and Nehemiah next week, and then uh, we'll get into the Christmas season. Um, and we're bracing for 2021. Again, my daughter said to me, she goes, I have this feeling. She goes that the, the countdown on December 31st, she goes, it's going to go 11.59 and 59 seconds, 11.59 and 60 seconds, 11.59 and 61 seconds, and this year is never going to end. Um, so... Yeah, it's uh, it's been an adventure. Uh, Marchtober was great, um, and we're moving on. Uh, if you're visiting with us uh, and you're you're with us and you're asking yourself, um, what have I gotten myself into? Um, we we have a good personality, um, but uh, this morning we want to get into the book of Nehemiah. So let's go ahead and go there. Oh oh oh, I, let me. I, I a couple of people asked me, so let me let me just say, uh, my dad is not in the hospital. Um, he did test positive for COVID. Um, he is sick, 
Um, but right now he's at home. His blood oxygen is good. Um, uh, we don't. We if he was in trouble, I would get a message from my older sister. Um, so as long as she doesn't text me during service, we're okay. Um, but he he is uh, you know he seems to be doing okay. He's he's been about a week. So this coming week will be an adventure. Anybody that's had a family member who has tested positive, you know. Uh, this is how it works. It kind of works through. Uh, in a couple weeks, you kind of figure out what's going on. So, um, so uh, I appreciate everybody uh, asking about it, praying about it, and um, the Tuesday night group knows, or the Wednesday night group knows. Um, uh, uh, I, I, you know, I am waiting to hear. We haven't seen him. I haven't visited with him. Um, he came up about a month ago, um, so that's the last time I saw him. Um, and uh, he is. Uh, he keeps calling his doctor, so his doctor's trying to get him to the hospital. There's this tug of war between the doctor and my sister. And if you've ever met my older sister, she will win. So, uh, anyway, let's go ahead and get into the book of... We're going we're gonna to be in the book of Nehemiah this morning. We, we were looking through Ezra and Nehemiah, um, talking about rebuilding. Um, and uh, very briefly, uh, the last few weeks we've been in the book of Ezra. Uh, in, the, uh, in our Bibles, they're broken up into two books. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, it's one book. Uh, it's just called Ezra. Um, but there is a, a very uh, very distinct break between the end of Ezra and the beginning of Nehemiah. There's a chronological break. Um, there's also a narrative break. Ezra is really two books. It's kind of the... Um, the our book of Ezra is kind of the, the first wave of uh, Jews coming back from Babylon in about 539 B.C. and uh, rebuilding the Temple of Jerusalem. Um, and when you look at the numbers and everything, uh, you try to figure out how many people, and there's, there's, you know, I think, I think it works out to 60,000 people around that um, that are listed um, in terms of coming back. Um, archaeology and archaeology in Jerusalem is hard because it's a city of a million people. You can't just, you can't just move people's houses and dig for stuff. Um, but uh, as near as can be told from the remnants that, that have been found, uh, Jerusalem itself was probably a town of about 1,500 to 2,000 uh, permanent uh, uh, people that lived there. And then everybody else kind of spread out over the Judean highlands outside of Jerusalem. And if you ever go to Israel, you, you will see why. Because Jerusalem is not a great place to live without modern plumbing and technology and stuff. It's It's... It's on top of a hill, and on one side of that hill are sheep pastures, and on the other side of that hill are wilderness. So there, there's not a lot of space to live, and so Jerusalem has always been, um, until modern times, Jerusalem was always kind of a small city that kind of swelled up during pilgrimage periods, and then it would, it would shrink back down. Um, so they build the temple... Uh, they established the, the temple worship, and then last week we talked about Ezra uh, purifies the people um, of all of their, their practices, their, um, their marriages with, with uh, people, uh, the people of the land, uh, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and, and uh, the groups that are outside of uh, the covenant that God has with Israel. The book of Nehemiah kind of fast forwards a little bit. Um, now, it's contemporary with parts of Ezra, um, this, these books are not given in a strictly chronological order, so there's a little bit of overlap here and there. Um, but uh, uh, Nehemiah is, starts in a different place. Um, Ezra starts with the people of Israel who were the, the Jews who were living in uh, Al-Yahud, which is a part of Babylon. So if you want to know where they were living, if you were to look at a modern map of Iraq, 
Um, and you, you kind of, you, there's two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Um, and the middle, in between the Tigris and the Euphrates, is, is called in Greek Mesopotamia. Meso, between, Potoma, um, rivers. So that's what Mesopotamia means, between the rivers. Um, if you ever wondered, I know that a lot of people were very concerned about that in fourth grade geography. Um, but, uh, but between those rivers is basically the region of Babylon. Um, and you can, you can still see the, the, the place, the location of Babylon, where it was. Um, and uh, and uh, if you go a little bit to the east and to the south, you get kind of this region down by the, the, in between the two rivers. That's where the Jews seem to have lived. There was a, a town called Yehudu, which means Jew town. That's actually what it meant. Um, it was basically a, 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 a center for them, and then there was a, call, a place called Bit Nasar, the, the house of Nasser. We don't, we don't know what it was, but that's, those two towns are where they lived. Um, and that's right outside of Babylon, and, and the walk to Babylon from, from Babylon to Jerusalem, um, it, it's a, you know, it's, it's a, uh, a thousand miles or so. Uh, 750 miles, I think, about um, that you have to uh, you have to kind of go up and then up along the rivers and then down to Jerusalem. Um, Nehemiah starts in a different place, a place called Shusha um, uh, or Shishu, depending on which language it's being pronounced in, um, which is the ancient capital of the Elamite kingdom. I know you guys are super excited about that. Um, and then it was taken over by uh, the Medes. Um, and then the Medes were, then it was taken over by the Persians, um, and, uh, or the Persians, it, this is a, I know this is a nerdy thing, but, um, the Persians are, Persian is the root of the word Farsi, so if you hear somebody talking about the Farsi language, um, the Persians were called the Farsi, um, they were, uh, they were a steppe people, S-T-E-P-P-E, not Okay. Um, steps were the wide, the wide plains in Asia that moved into the mountains of what is today Iran and then eventually became a military force and then eventually established their own empire. Um, they speak their own language. It's still today. It's still called Farsi. They still speak it in that part of the world. Um, it's the, it is Persian or Farsi are, is the second most important language of Islam in modern society. The Persians are, are Muslims today. Um, but in those days, uh, they were originally kind of, uh, they had kind of a tribal religion, and then they, they began worshiping using a, a, a religion we call today Zoroastrianism. It's a dualist religion. I talked about that a few weeks ago. Um, and they, they, they had four capitals. They had seasonal capitals, and one of them is this town, Susha. Uh, Susha is... Um, it's uh, to the southwest of Iran. So if you, you were to look at a map of the Middle East and you kind of see Iraq is in the middle um, and then there's Kuwait down this little piece down at the end of the Persian Gulf and Iran just seems to go forever uh, off the map. Every picture of the Middle East I've ever seen, Iran just keeps going um, and eventually it becomes Afghanistan and Pakistan but um, there's this, this section of Iran and Shusha is down in kind of the bottom uh, of it in the lowlands and, uh, and Shusha is almost as far away from Babylon as Babylon is from Jerusalem. All right? so, so when we read about Nehemiah in chapter 1, and we're going to get there, you need to understand that where this is taking place is several hundred miles to the east of where Ezra lived, which was several hundred miles to the east of Jerusalem. So he, this is almost as if 
um, we were telling a story that occurs in San Francisco about people that lived in Iowa, and then we get another group of people who live in about West Virginia. All right, this is that's how far away they are. It's a little bit too far, but um, it kind of gives you an idea of the scale. Um, it'd probably be closer to Denver, Denver, Iowa. Yeah. Anyway. Um, and you guys are all, you're all like taking out your, your, your scaled maps of the U.S. He's wrong. That's not right. Um, anyway, so that's where we pick up. So in, in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, Hislev, in the 20th year, that's the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes, his rule, as I was in Shusha, the citadel, um, that Hanani one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, once again, we come to your word. We we look to a life uh, lived long before our time in a world in many ways completely alien from ours. And Lord, we seek to see not just Nehemiah, but to see you, to see how you are working his life and how you are working ours. Uh, transforming, renewing, rebuilding, challenging, chastening, encouraging, lifting up. Lord, may we see you, may we hear from you, may your spirit speak as we engage with your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So Nehemiah, he's living in Shusha, and we find out in the chapter, I'm not going to get through all the details about it, we find out in the chapter um, that he has a very specific job. Uh, At the end of chapter 1, you read that now I was cupbearer to the king. Uh, Nehemiah hears that Jerusalem is destroyed. The rest of chapter 1 is a prayer that he prays um, to God, that God would restore, that he would... um, uh, And it's very similar to the prayers that Ezra prays, and you can read it on your own, in your own time when you want to. Um, But he he is asking God to to fix the problem that exists in Jerusalem. Now understand that Nehemiah lives so far away from Jerusalem that he has no idea what's going on. There's no television, there's no radio, there's no uh, Instagram, uh, there's no snap face or face chat. Um, there, is, there is no real uh, direct communication. Now there is a main highway that runs from Shusha to Babylon to Damascus to Jerusalem to Egypt to Asia Minor. So there is a, there is a highway that, that couriers are traveling along and that's where these men who come to see Nehemiah, that's wh- how they would have walked. And we know that this, this story is, uh, is happening here in this Persian capital. Nehemiah is a relatively young man, so probably born in exile, probably born in Persia, and has absolutely no concept of what it means to be a Jew living in Judea, in Jerusalem. We assume that his parents are exiles, but we really don't know anything about his dad. And on top of that, Nehemiah is a a revered member of the court of the king. And I want to I want to kind of give this to you. I'm going to give you some stuff about Nehemiah rather than going verse by verse through this. I just want to give you some stuff. The first thing is that he's the cupbearer. 
Um, the, 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 the word mashka, it, it is, it is, um, it's complicated what a cupbearer was. So first of all, a cupbearer had to be, um, how do I put this nicely? The way that Herodotus put it was that cupbearers tended to be um, fetching young men. Um, they had to be good looking. They had to be well built. They had to uh, have a certain uh, proportment and, and, and uh, style to them because they were with the king. And they had to be trustworthy. Um, they, had to be, um, they had to be dependable. His job as a cupbearer, his, his formal official job as cupbearer, um, was to serve the wine at the meals. Um, and of course, if you know anything about ancient history, you know the number one way that you have a peaceful transition of power in the ancient world is to poison the previous guy. Um, and so his job is basically he's a bodyguard. Now, he's got this fancy title that he's the cupbearer, but Nehemiah's job is to keep the king safe. He has a, a primary role in the government. He's a very, he seems to be a very reliable guy. And he, the way that he conveys himself to the, to, in this narrative is that he is trusted explicitly by the king. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in chapter 2 and verse 6, and you can read it there, it says that the queen was with the king when Nehemiah goes to talk to him. Now, we're going to get into the story of what, what's happening. But this is a big deal. This is not, oh, why don't you and the wife come on over? Um, Persian men were not allowed to see the Persian queen. She was concealed from sight at all times. Now, when we go, you know, we, of course, today we talk about the Taliban and Islam and, and how, how, you know, the Taliban, they had the women wearing the, you know, the, the burqas and they could barely see through and, and you know, they're, they're completely covered. That is not a Muslim thing. That's a Middle Eastern thing. It's, it's actually a Persian thing. Um, it, it, that was what they did. If their women went out in public, they had to be completely covered so the men, so no other man could look at her. Um, because to look at this, this queen uh, was to see... Uh, what the king saw, and the king was basically commissioned by God and special and unique, so there was no way that common men could see her. The fact that Nehemiah is allowed to be in her presence and to serve meals with her probably indicates that Nehemiah was a eunuch. If you don't know what that was, Google it. Um, uh, but uh, he, he is so trusted that the queen is allowed to be there with the king. So in other words... Nehemiah serves the meals, the private family meals of the king. He is absolutely a trusted man. And not only is he trusted, but as we read the narrative, we're going to find out um, he is a friend. Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, the two S's is a car, one, month, one S is a, a month of the year. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. Remember, what is he has to be dashing. He has to, have, he has to be uh, stylish. He's, he's got, his job is to be good-looking next to the king. I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Now, first of all, that, that is an, a great question to ask the guy that makes sure that your wine is not poisoned. Well, I know you're not sick, because if you were, I'd be dead. 
All right, because he would have to drink the taste the wine, and if if Nehemiah got sick, the king knew not to drink the wine. So he says, "All right, I know you're sad. You're obviously there's something wrong with you. Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart." The king knows Nehemiah well enough that he knows there's something wrong with Nehemiah. And you guys all know the difference between knowing somebody, kind of, sort of, being acquainted, uh, job place, uh, 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 job proximity, occupation proximity associates, all right, and being friends with somebody. You can tell when there's something wrong with their heart. There's something going on in their lives. Um, and, and he says, so there's a sickness of the heart. And, and Nehemiah, I was very much afraid. Now, why on earth would he be very much afraid? Because if there's something wrong with your bodyguard, you're in danger. So the king wants to make sure there's nothing wrong with this guy that is going to uh, cause him problems. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Again, this is not just a formality. He's letting the king know, don't worry, you're safe. Nobody poisoned me. This is, this is not... I'm not going to assassinate you. Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now, this had occurred in 586 B.C. It had occurred uh, almost a century before this conversation takes place. The Babylonians had destroyed the city, and they had left it without walls. Now, in the ancient world, the city without walls is is free pickings. All right, there's no way to protect the people from attacking armies. So the city has been abandoned. Well, they, Ezra and his crew, they went back and they built Zerubbabel built the temple, and Ezra went back and helped the people. But they're still living spread all over the countryside, um, and they've got no place to go to if an invading army comes in and attacks. This is the 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 you know the city the the city of my father's graves. And then the king said to him, "So what are you requesting?" So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, so this is a, this is a familial conversation that's taking place, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? Again, a practical question, because I'm going to be drinking water the whole time you're away. I'd really like to know. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So Nehemiah has a plan. He says, he says this, is, this is when I need to go. This is how long I'll be away. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let the letters be given to me to the, gov- let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river. Um, this is the province, the satrap, the satrapi of Ebirnari. Um, if you're keeping track, um, it means beyond the rivers, um, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forests, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortresses, fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So, 
Nehemiah, not only is he a trusted advisor, he's also aware, because one of the other jobs of the cupbearer of the Persian king was to be um, the guy that audited the books. He wasn't the bookkeeper. Right? He wasn't the guy that was keeping track of everything. He was the guy who found the people that were ripping the king off. The people who were charging $13,000 for a screwdriver. We could use a cupbearer in our budgeting process in this country. Um, but uh, he was, he was uh, that money did not go to Area 51. It did not. There are no aliens. You're fine. Really nice screwdriver. Signed. Um, the, the cupbearer's job was to audit things. So he was aware of what it took in order for him to go and, and to rebuild the city and what he was going to need. And he says, give me a letter to the king of the forest because there's certain kinds of wood that we're going to use to build this gate. I don't know if any of you have ever built uh, an ancient city wall. Um, it's not a skill that a lot of people have acquired recently. Um, but you can't, just, you can't just build a door out of any piece of wood. It's like, oh, I've got this really nice piece of white pine. It'll be fantastic. Now, you build doors out of, out of wood that's not going to splinter and break. You build doors out of tough wood. Um, you, don't, you don't just make it out of anything. And so he needs these special trees that the king's, the king's forest has that he wants to, have, to use. Um, and the king's forest, we're in Lebanon, um, and so he, he wants a letter that says it's okay for him to take a couple of these trees and build some gates. Um, <clears throat> what happens here uh, is, and if you read in verse 8, there's a line of fortress. I just want to tell you what's happening here in Persian politics so you understand. What Nehemiah is asking is not just for the ability to go and build a wall at a random city. The, the way that this is phrased, Nehemiah is asking the king to appoint him as the governor of an armed, fortified city. In verse 8, it says, the, uh, you, you can read in verse 8, it says, um, there's this line, it says, uh, to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple. The word fortress is the word birah. Um, birah in, in, um, in the Persian world, in the Assyrian and the Babylonian and the Persian empires, birah is the word for a fortified capital of a region. This was the strong point that all the people went to if an invading army um, came in. It was the place that all the troops gathered because all their resources were there to be able to outlast the siege. It was where the militia was. It was where uh, all the weapons were. It's where the, the administration of a, of a district was. And up until this point... In their history, basically, and you can see this happens in Ezra, and it happens in Nehemiah as well, uh, Jerusalem was kind of under the administration of another region that seems to have been based in the city of Samaria, which is uh, a little bit north. Um, and it was an unarmed... And basically, this was the place that was... Um, uh, like my, my, my dad used to talk about uh, the draft in the 60s. Um, and when he was 17, he was 1A, which any of you that have lived through that, you know what that means. Um, it means that um, if your birthday comes up, you're going someplace hot and sweaty with a gun. Um, and then when he was 18, he got shot. We won't get into this. My dad is, seems to just attract bullets. Um, he, get, he got shot, and he jokes around that he was rated, after that he was rated 4F in case of war used as a hostage. Um, he, he, uh, but this was what Jerusalem was. Jerusalem was the place you abandoned to go to the safe place. 
It was rated for F. Um, you, you didn't stay in Jerusalem. If, some, if an army started coming, you got out of Dodge. You headed for the, the, the hill country of Ephraim and you went to Samaria and you hoped that they would let you in. What Nehemiah is asking for is that the king shift the, the policy and make Jerusalem the capital of its own district, allow him to build walls and to govern that part of the empire in the king's name. He is making a big ask. Now, there's a whole lot of, of practical stuff that I could get out of this. For one thing, um, if you're going to ask something big of somebody, you better have already built up some trust. I mean, Nehemiah, Nehemiah has spent his entire life being a trustworthy servant of this king. So when he makes this ask, um, the king can trust him. The king knows what he's doing. You better have a plan. You better know what you're talking about when you make that, that, that request. Um, this is not a pick on anybody, but you know, sometimes people come up to me and say, you know what, it'd be really a good idea if the church did fill in the blank. And if you've ever asked me that question, sometimes you'll notice that I give you kind of a half nod. That's a great idea. And then usually it's followed by, why don't you put together a plan and I'll give it to the elders. Do you know why? Because I don't want to do that work. I know how much work a lot of things are. And I know how often it falls on, well, me. So I want people to understand what is required of something, of a ministry. If you put together a plan and you come back and say, this is the plan, then you know what you're getting into. Uh, when, when Eric Wittenberg, um, and we talked about this for years, we talked about getting the rescue mission thing going and, and ministering to, the, to our community and stuff. And then Eric, Eric, I mean, one thing Eric does, Eric C., he will write a plan. He will put together a plan. Um, and, and when Eric finally came to the elders with the plan... He, he took into consideration all of the requirements, right? How many people would be required, what it was going to cost. He gave us a proposed budget. He went through and made the plan. So now, what is it, two years, three, two years? It's, a, it's about, about a year that we've been going hard, right? Um, Eric knows every month what's required of that ministry. He knows what's expected. He knows how to adjust because he made the plan. And Nehemiah, when he makes this big ask... He made a plan. He knew what was going on. He knew what the expectations were. He was in for the long term. But that's not the sermon. That's just a side. What I, what I want to get out of Nehemiah, instead of that, you guys can write a sermon on that one, um, is this. Nehemiah did not go to the king asking to reestablish the kingdom of Judah. Nehemiah did not go to the king saying, you owe us to allow us to rebuild. Nehemiah did not go to the king whining about how um, his people had been oppressed by the previous administrations. Nehemiah goes to the king understanding that when God is going to restore Jerusalem, things are going to change. That it's no longer going to be the capital of a kingdom. It's going to be a fortress on the edge of an empire. 
and that it's no longer going to be that that you know we read in first and second Sam, you know second Samuel that that the king King David he could just ask King Hiram of of Phoenicia of Tyre and Sidon to to send some lumber down and and they build this temple it's not going to be like that he's got to ask the king for a letter to the the leader of the the forest uh, department to cut down these trees he understands that what God is going to rebuild given the sin and failure of the people of Israel in the previous generations, what God was going to rebuild would be changed. Now, I think most of us understand that about life. When something gets broken and you rebuild it, it's going to be changed. It's not going to be the same. Some of you have had to rebuild marriages. And you know that rebuilding that relationship, the relationship changes. Some, some of you, some of you, I mean, some of you have had to, to deal with the, the situation. I mean, the situation my grandfather was in when my grandmother died. Um, and and he, they had been married for so long. They got married at 16. Um, he, he didn't even have a high school diploma when they got married. Never did. Um, when, when she died, he literally did not even know where the paper towels were in his house. She had done everything for him. She had taken care of everything for him. He had never had to worry about paying bills. Now, he found out later that for the last year or so of her life, she wasn't doing too great on paying off the credit cards. But, um, but he, he, he was super dependent. He found himself, in, and then uh, he, he married Sandy about three months later. His, his second wife, her husband, had just passed away, and he married her, and he moved to Portland, uh, Oregon. He moved from eastern Pennsylvania to Portland, Oregon. There's a change. Um, and, uh, and he moved out there and discovered that being married to Sandy was going to be very different than being married to my grandmother. And, and they had this strange thing where they would sit and talk about their deceased spouses and how much they loved them. And you sit there, now those of us that are still on the first one, you sit there and go, that's weird. But for those of you that have been through that, you know that that's part of your relationship. It, it's, it's not the same. It's changed. When God restores something, it's changed. And it's not, it's not that one was better than the other. It's just different. This was not a kingdom. This was a Persian fort. This was not going to have a king. The son of David wasn't going to be sitting on a throne. Um, it was going to be Nehemiah, who has no connection with the kingdom of David, being a governor. And we have a choice when God restores us. This is where I want to I kind of plant, and I want to encourage you to, to read ahead into Nehemiah. And think as well about this season of Thanksgiving and being thankful for the things in your life that God has restored When God restores something and it's not the same as what the, the what you have idealized of the past, we wax nostalgic about what went before. Oh, I wish that we could still, you know, uh, I, I, you know, and nostalgia is a big thing with my generation right now. Um, all the TV shows seem to be reboots of things that I was a kid, and until they reboot Knight Rider and bring back the Hoff, it's not it's not right. Um, Night Rider without the Hoff is not right. Am I right? Am I right? Anybody? All right, got to have the Hoff. Um, uh, but the uh, if you those of you that are too young to know who the Hoff is, 
just trust me, he's big in Germany. Um, so the, <laughs> but when God restores something, a rabbit trail there, um, when God restores something and it's been changed, you have a choice. You can either look at that changed thing and spend your entire life hoping that one day it becomes the thing that you're nostalgic for. Or you can embrace what God has provided you and you can accept it. Because if you do the first, you are never going to be content. You are never going to find that again. One of the reasons, I mean, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons that my family moved away from owning Toyotas is we had the single greatest car ever to come off of an assembly line. It was a 1996 Toyota Corolla CE. It had crank windows. It had no stereo. I had to put a stereo into it. That thing, you could put it into low gear and climb Mount Washington in the winter. It ran for three years with zero maintenance except oil changes. That, whole, that car, I owned that car for how long did I own that car? We traded it in when Ariel was little, right? So I owned that car for like six years, five years, and spent less than $1,000 on it. We went from that to another Toyota Corolla, not the same at all. I owned it for about three weeks, spun it in a snowstorm, Bent the frame. It was never the same. Um, but it was just not great. That car, now when we traded that car in, and I'm not exaggerating when I say, my wife cried because the car was awesome. It was incredible. Now you're all sitting there going, he's talking about a Toyota Corolla. Like it was a Ferrari. Listen, this thing was amazing. All right? Loved this car. First car I ever bought off a car lot that wasn't smoking when I drove off with it. You can spend your life longing for other cars to be like that car, but it's not going to be. You can spend your life longing for your relationship with your spouse or your children to be what it once was. But you're never going to be content. You're never going to settle. You're never going to get down to the work of the life that you are living now if you are always wondering, if I had never messed up, if this had never been wrecked, it would have been so much better. We are not called to live in the past hoping that the future becomes like the past. We are called to live in the present led by the Holy Spirit to the future that He has for us. And we have to learn to be content and to live and to work where we are, not where we wish we were. Generations of Christians were so obsessed with the idea of, well, if we could just restore the, 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 the early church. Ray knows what I'm talking about. Church literature that was written about, we need to be an Acts 2 church. We, we could find this. And everybody was trying to come up with a formula and a way to develop so we could be like that church. And then one day you realize you can't be like that church. You've got to be the church that you are. You've got to be the ministers you are in the culture you're in. You've got to serve the people that you are a part of. You've got the spouse you've got, not the one that you wish you hadn't lost. Now that sounds harsh. 
but it's true. You have got the kids you raised. Not the kids that you wish Dr. Oz had raised. (laughs) You have got the job you have. Not the job you wish you had gotten. You you are called to the moment you're in, not the moment you think you lost. Nehemiah rebuilds the wall of Jerusalem not as a capital of a kingdom, but as a fortress on the edge of an empire. And he wholeheartedly, 100%, embraces the reality of, of where God has called him to serve at that moment and the role that God has called him into. And he doesn't embrace it regretfully. We joke around about me being the second choice for Heritage Baptist Church in 2004. Well, I guess we'll make do with the short guy. (laughs) But if you live with that anxiety of trying to constantly prove, constantly trying to improve i just got to get back to that past oh i wish that he was like this you know we used to joke around about you know if you find the perfect church don't join it you'll mess it up um the the idea the idea that that oh we we used to have if we could just restore we don't we don't have what we had we have what we have and true contentment true happiness comes from embracing what God is doing in the restoration of our lives. We could all long for things to be better and different. When I look back on my life, are there friendships that I wish I had not ruined? Of course. When I look back on the 21 years, right? <laughs> Almost 22 years that we've been married. Are there things I wish I had done differently? Of course. Mistakes I wish I had not made. Things that I wish I had done differently. When I look back on being a pastor for 16 years, are there, are there moments I wish I could take back? Of course. but I'm not looking to restore an idealized past. I'm looking to live in the present. And I would encourage you, as God rebuilds what He rebuilds in your life, whatever He is rebuilding in your life, just just go ahead and admit, take nostalgia out back of the barn and shoot it. And live where God has put you And do it with all that you are. Repent of the resentment of the past not being the present. And be who God has called you to be in the moment He has called you to be. He's like, yeah, but it was so much better back then. Yeah, but you can't travel back in time. Doc Brown is not real. You're in the present, striving for the future that God wants you to have. So embrace it wholeheartedly. Love it. Devote yourself to it. Do whatever it takes to be a part of what God is restoring 
and surrender the longing for something more. Something from the past that you think could be more. And instead, pursue the goals God has put for you in the present for the future he's given you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, in one one way or another, all of us are failures. Not a single person here has not blown it at some point. And through your grace, if you have restored to us the the thing, the relationship, the connection, the the passion, the job, the, the role, whatever it is, Lord, help us to embrace where we are to be as faithful in the restored thing that you are doing as we think we would have been if we had never made the mistake. Help us to lay aside the distraction of discontent and instead embrace your Spirit's future for us. Lord, help us to uh, dig deep to the layer of love and devotion for you that becomes love and devotion for the task you've laid in front of us. Lord, may we honor and glorify you in what we say and do. May our brokenness be a testimony of your tremendous love. We pray this by your grace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace and give you peace and give you peace forever.